Hello everyone and welcome to the Power of Music Thinking. My name is Christoph Zürn and this is the podcast for people with a musical heart and a wicked job. We're looking for stories, insights and tools from the big world of music to inspire leaders and followers to listen, tune, play and perform in whatever field you're operating. What is the relationship between art-based learning, innovation and co-creation? How do you lead an ensemble of leaders? And why do people often use the metaphor of a conductor when discussing leadership? Isn't a conductor actually just something like a middle manager? So, today we are in New York and talking with Harvey Seifter. Harvey is the founder of the Art of Science Learning a U.S. National Science Foundation-funded initiative that uses the arts to spark innovation in science, technology, engineering, and education. And Harvey is also a classical trained musician and formerly served as executive director of the Orpheus Jambo Orchestra, the only orchestra in the world that rehearses and performs without a conductor. Harvey shares with us insights on giving directions as a decision-maker of last resort, as he calls it, stimulating co-creation and what this means for the innovative power of the organization. Well, you can say we have learnings here for any organization. And by the way, we recorded this episode via Zoom when Harvey returned just a few days from his TED Talk in Madrid. Before the talk, he lost his voice. And finally, did the TED Talk without repetition. So, to spare his voice and energy, we stopped the recording at a certain point and agreed to have a second conversation in the very near future. So, listen to part one with Harvey Seifter and how you lead an orchestra of leaders. Welcome, Harvey. Welcome to The Power of Music Thinking. It's great to be here, Christoph. Well, Harvey, in The Power of Music Thinking, I always start with one question. It's like, a, it's like a ritual. It's always the same question, and it goes like this. What was your first sonic experience or album or live performance that had an impact on you? Okay, that's, uh, that's a good question. Uh, so the first that I can remember that had a real impact on me was music at home so it was um it was my mother playing the piano she actually taught me the basic notes of the piano when i was so young that i, I don't remember a time when 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 i didn't know them uh and taught me to connect those with the symbols on the page so again there was not a time when when i can remember that i didn't know how to read music and wasn't used to listening to it uh It was just kind of it was in the air that that, that we breathed, and it obviously had a lifelong impact on. Me. Do you mean you you first read music before you read a book, for example? Yes, yes. I learned to read music before I learned to read English. Wow, that's my first language. I can actually remember the moment where I first began to connect letters to words, 
uh, I was with my dad actually, and, and I was watching him read a newspaper, and uh, which I used to do. I used to sit next to him, and I would sort of hold a paper, I guess, sort of like he he had. And I was already picking out letters, but I remember when suddenly the idea that letters came together for words started to mean something to me, and where I started to say things. Mm. Um, but by that time, I was already reading music. I don't remember a time when I didn't, didn't read music. Wow. And was it piano music? So you read from the piano score? Yes, that that that, that was the first read. My, my, my sister, who's more than five years older than me, uh, is a pianist and was already a pretty accomplished one and, and, and played a great deal. Uh, so piano was her instrument. Um, I, I kind of quickly moved from the basics of picking out notes on a keyboard to violin, which was which was my instrument. But first, it was piano, actually. Yeah, interesting because um, I always when when you think about a, a musical score, it's actually more an instruction than just something to read. Which which is interesting as an analogy to so both is reading, but one is reading for doing, yes. and the other one is reading for yeah maybe it's also for doing, but also for for imagination for anything else. Yes, the idea of reading music as 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 an imaginative, pleasurable kind of experience that reveals its own kind of nuances and insights that that came to me much later. That came to me with orchestral scores. Uh, and I found at that time, and I still to this day find that I can derive an awful lot of pleasure from just reading an orchestral score. Yeah. Uh, but but that's that's very different than the instructional nature of okay, so that's that note and that's how long you play it and that kind of thing. Oh, I, I can tell you an anecdote about this too, just pops in my mind. Um, um, when, when I was studying, um, I uh, I also worked in a, in a music store. And I worked in the department of of uh, musical scores, and you might know the composer Wolf, uh, Wolfgang Riem, so uh, a German composer. And he came there and bought books with his little daughter. And the little daughter said, "Oh, Papa, why do why do you need these books?" And it it was all orchestral scores, so these yellow uh, yellow yes. uh, pocket books. And yep. he said, "You know, when I'm in the train, so I have something to read." <laughs> 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 That's wonderful, and and so I thought, oh, okay, so it's it's also like pure pleasure, pure, pure and yeah. Uh, yeah, very nice. Well, thank you, thank you for sharing, and um, yeah, you know, we know each other since a few months, I would say, and we have yes, yes quite quite some uh, some online uh, online meetings to, together. But um, can you please share who you are and what you do for a living? Sure. Um, so, who am I? Uh, well, let's see. <laughs> Somebody whose first language is music, uh, but and 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 my first instrument was violin, and then I kind of uh, migrated from violin to conducting, uh, and that was a real passion of mine. In college, I started hanging out with a rougher crowd, so I began to do theater, uh, and so and and and. Theater was was a, it was just a passion of mine. It was something that I really loved. I also really loved the, the the social aspects of it. There were great parties. There were really interesting engagements with audiences. Things things that um, to this day remain much a part of my life. Um, so my my career 
uh, revolved pretty much entirely around making music and making theater. In terms of music, I was conducting orchestras, uh, you know, in a, in, in a student way and in, in a small scale professional way. Uh, I went from that to a uh, uh, real passion for conducting operas and from operas to musical. And that was my bridge into, in, 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 into theater. Theater, um, I began to, to work professionally in New York uh, in my 20s. Even before that, in, in Boston after school, I was really interested, had a passion for German experimental theater and expressionist theater from the early 20th century, uh, and of course, American contemporary avant-garde and experimental theater. I became uh, involved with a company in New York called Theater for the New City, Theater for the New City being one of the real founding generation of off-off-Broadway theaters in New York. Uh, it was a... Uh, then a three theater complex in the East Village, and we did somewhere around fifty shows a year. All of them oh. were new. All of them were experimental. It was a three ring circus, quite literally. Uh, and we uh, we did everything from very uh, solo performance art to huge ensemble pieces to uh, street theater that we took to all five boroughs of New York and with a cast of dozens uh, and uh, so all different kinds of work and um, I stayed with Theatre for the New City for seven years I became eventually its, its executive director hmm. uh, so I produced during my time there about 450 new American plays some of them became very well known um, some of them won you know OB awards and drama desks awards and those kinds of things many of them didn't become known at all but they were just really exciting and outstanding work and also did quite a lot of, of, of European work during that period too. So for example, uh, brought the German playwright Heiner Müller, uh, yeah. his work to the United States for the first time in our production of Hamlet Machine. Yeah, uh, Hamlet Machine, and that's, uh, that's yeah. nice. So it's yeah, also yeah. like, um, do, you, do you know Der Mann im Fahrstuhl, the yeah. man in the elevator? Yes. Okay. So, so that that was one. Um, the German writer uh, Kurtz did a lot of his work for the first time in in the states. So that that was an important element. Also, did uh, we had Dario Fo in residence? We did we did we did his work. So, which fit in wonderfully with the uh, political and the circus like street aspects of of, of, of our work at the University. So, I, I I did all of this uh, this, this work, and eventually uh, was invited to to go out to the West Coast. Uh, well, before I did that, um, New York in the 80s was a kind of an interesting place, and the East Village was in many ways the, the epicenter of the artistic ferment of, uh, of, of, of New York during those years. Uh, and there was a real estate revolution going on, mm. which was um, changing the, the, the composition of the East Village very much. So the East Village, in, the East Village has a theater tradition which actually went back at that time, a hundred years, because Second Avenue, the main street of the East Village, was actually the Broadway of the Yiddish stage mm. in New York in the late 1800s. Oh. And so when I say the Broadway of the Yiddish stage, what I mean is that the parents and the grandparents, many of the founders of we think of, of American theater, like Stella Adler, her father, Jacob Adler, played Lear in Yiddish on the Broadway of the Yiddish stage, Second Avenue, these grand houses. So there was all this 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 theater tradition uh, in that neighborhood, 
and the neighborhood had changed over the generations. And so there were different different ethnic groups and, and, and cultures that were represented there. But it was always a place where people came. And people mm. came from all over and were expressing themselves and were experimenting. And among other things, it was fueled by cheap real estate. Because you could actually live there and you could try things. And you didn't have to spend all of your time raising the money to pay the landlord. Mm. And then all of a sudden, in the 80s, that began to change. And what happened was we had this 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 theater complex where we did these these fifty shows a year. I should say that at the time we we used to charge three dollars a ticket, which wow. even then was just unheard of. As a matter of fact, I remember that when Reagan became president and, and tried to cut the National Endowment for the Arts, we raised the price from third from three to four dollars. We called it the Reagan surcharge. So <laughs> so. You know, this is the how we lived. And then suddenly the landlord came in one day and said, okay, we're going to raise your rent 600%. This isn't for you anymore. Goodbye. So that led us in a saga went on for several years where we actually went all over the neighborhood and we found a, another place. And what we found was uh, an old market building that had mm. been built by the WPA to house pushcarts and peddlers that used to clog, clog the, that, that neighborhood. Uh, and wasn't being used for anything except the New York Department of Sanitation was using it to warehouse and print bureaucratic forms. It was like a Kafkaesque fantasy land. All these forms that say no parking Tuesday, trash collection, all piled billions all over this warehouse, this prime, fantastic building in the middle of the East Village. And of course, the guys on the side, they were also renting out parking spaces. We're <laughs> at a premium and, and, and making a little something up. So, wow, that's highly creative and also highly creative and, um, yeah, finding your space, creating your space. Yeah. So we, 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 led a, uh, we led a community movement, which went on for, for a couple of years. We, were, uh, we ended up rallying thousands of people. We got the mayor involved. We got Joe Cowan from the public theater involved and helped out. It became a big cause. And eventually, we were able to buy our own building and move. We, we formed a human brigade line and moved all of our stuff from the old place to the new place hand to hand. It took all day. And uh, there we were. And so at that point, I got an offer to go out to California to become the, uh, the artistic director of a really important theater out there. And I decided it was, this was a good time for a change. So I went to the Magic Theater in San Francisco and continued to expand on my work with new and experimental theater. Uh, and uh, we, while there, one of our plays won the Kennedy Center Award, and we were becoming increasingly known for 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 some important work. And uh, eventually, I just missed New York too much. I came back home to New York, and I met my wife. Uh, we got married. Uh, Marge got pregnant with our daughter and I figured, okay, maybe it's time to stop some of the theater stuff and get a job so that, you know, things, things can be calm and good and it's a good environment. So that's actually what yanked me by the collar and brought me back to music. Mm. So I came back to music. I, I was invited to become the director of the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. Oh, so, wow. So did, did you play violin also during your theater days or was this just, let's say, a box somewhere in the corner? It was in the corner and it was too far gone for me to be able to play violin with, with Orpheus. I, I couldn't play at that level. Anymore. 
Uh, well, right. and, and, and so I took the job as executive director, but not as a member, uh, as a performing musician with the orchestra. For the listener, I think we we should share who the Orpheus, I would say the famous Orpheus yeah. Orchestra, <laughs> what it is and who they are, yeah. and, and also what it means to be a director there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so Orpheus is, first and foremost, it's an astoundingly wonderful orchestra. It's just a really extraordinary ensemble created back in the 70s by a core group of musicians, most of whom had come out of Juilliard and Columbia, and were all against the war. And were many of them were performing together in a group called Musicians Against the War. Mm. And in that environment, they decided, you know, there was a lot of question going on at that time about all kinds of things about leadership, a different generation. They said, what if we just get rid of the conductor? What if we do this without a conductor? And of course, it's not like there were no models ever of orchestras without a conductor. There were some mm -hmm. experiments in the Soviet Union in the 20s. There, there are certain types of, 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 of period ensembles that work without a conductor. But yep. somehow this was a little bit different in several ways. First, they decided that they were going to work on the chamber music principle. So this would not be a conductorless orchestra where nevertheless the concertmaster would be the quasi-conductor. Yeah. Uh, and would be it would beat the time and make the decisions and so on and so forth. Like you like you had in Baroque, where sometimes the conductor was sitting behind the piano, and, from, <laughs> and when he was not on the keys, he was sometimes giving <laughs> giving accents or cues to, yes. to yeah to keep it going or together with and the trying and trying to keep his staff out of the way of his foot, like Lily. Right. <laughs> but um, this was a little this was a little bit different. The idea here was to take. The, the model and the ideal of chamber music and bring it to the orchestral repertoire. So the idea is that there would not be one leader, that this would be an orchestra of leaders where everybody would lead sometimes, which of course also meant that everybody would follow sometimes and that you need to develop some rules of the road so that that could actually work in a practical sense. So the orchestra began experimenting with that in, in, in the 70s. And almost immediately, the, 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 the musicians were extraordinarily talented and gifted musicians. They were also passionately committed to the work and deeply engaged by this kind of music making. The results were, were, were wonderful and they were really powerful. So within a few years of its founding, Orpheus found a home in Carnegie Hall. They found their way to, to global recording contracts with Deutsche Grammophon and others. And the orchestra began to be known as one of the world's great ensembles. When I came to Orpheus, Orpheus had been doing this now for 25 years. Hmm. Uh, and so its ways of, its, of, of, of working were well established. In the early days, it was very difficult because since there weren't a lot of rules of the road, how do you do this conductorless Thing. Well, right. how, do make it work? how do you make it work in performance? How do you make it work in rehearsal? How do you make it work at the human level? The orchestra would play brilliantly, but sometimes you would have to rehearse for weeks just to be ready for one concert because it was right. not what you would think of as an efficient process. And By maybe Harvey, we also should share that this was classical music. And yes. making the link with a score, it was exactly written out, like in in, in times of Mozart, Beethoven, um, or in, in Beethoven, you also have the uh, the metronome numbers there. Oh. So it was some kind of exact thing that everybody know what to do. But how do you how do you 
keep this together so that it's even maybe more extraordinary than all the other, um, let's say, the, the big conductors with their orchestra play. So what, what was the repertoire? So, so the, re the repertoire from the beginning was a very broad, eclectic repertoire. The only thing that limited it at the beginning was the, the, the size of the orchestra. Yeah. Initially, there were there were 26 musicians in Orpheus, and it, so it was meant to be a classical a classical orchestra, um, you know, a, 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 the kind of orchestra you might you might have in in, in a Mozart symphony, let's say. Yeah. Uh, and they had a few friends, so if they needed trumpet and drums, they could bring in trumpet and drums and that kind of thing. But it, it, it was a relatively compact kind of thing over the years. That expanded dramatically. During my time at Orpheus, the orchestra actually performed for the first time ever the Eroica Symphony uh, at Carnegie Hall without a conductor. And that had actually not been done before, and it worked quite beautifully, and it further expanded from there. So it, it, in some work, the orchestra would grow, would grow to as many as 50 or 55 musicians. It seemed, from a practical standpoint, that once you get into double horns, so four horns or more, it gets more difficult to hold everybody together. Right. Not impossible, but more difficult. And so, so there, there, there are technical issues like that. But the repertoire ranged from, from Baroque all the way through through 20th century and, of course, to the 21st century music. The orchestra has a long tradition of commissioning yeah. work and doing experimental stuff. There's been a fair amount of crossover work. During my years there, we did a, a, a wonderful recording with Branford Marsalis on jazz-influenced classics from early 20th century Paris. We did record a recording which actually won won a Grammy with uh, Herbie Hancock. And so we, we did some crossover work, but the core of the repertoire of the orchestra was classical, romantic, and modern classical music in that sense. Yeah, right. I, I saw the last work from Wayne Shorter, who, who, who died a few weeks ago. Uh, and I looked it up, say, okay, he also wrote a classical piece. Yeah. And then I said, oh, it's it's from Orpheus Chamber yeah. Orchestra. Yeah. That's that's very interesting. And also I saw Ravi Shankar. There's also an, uh, a yes. symphony from Ravi Shankar. Yeah. That sounds also very special. So it um, it also looks like, so if we, if we look back how it uh, came up, like from what you said, the the musicians against the war, so doing something different. Yeah. Also, uh, being everybody is is not alone, uh, only active playing, but more than playing. So there's there's maybe a, a, a bigger idea be, behind yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the really interesting things you talk about the musical school. So generally speaking, in a symphony orchestra, you have. Of course, the conductor is, is working for the full score, and the individual musicians have their parts. The music stands in front of them. The parts have been carefully marked by the principal of their section in coordination with the concertmaster, in coordination with whoever the, the, the music director of the orchestra is, perhaps the visiting conductor, who sent the parts ahead the way that, that person wanted, wanted the bowings to go and the phrasings to go. Um, so... There was that kind of centralization and specialization and top-down approach, which was baked deeply into the culture of symphony orchestras over a couple of centuries. Mm -hmm. So Orpheus used the scores differently. Every musician worked from the full score. 
Oh, wow. Now, they also, of course, had their own card on the stand in front of them, so they visually not, you know, be able to focus. But each musician was working from the full score. So everybody understood what their own role was in relationship to a complex whole. And that empowered them to think and feel and act and contribute and suggest and argue for their point of view about how they can best support this whole and what this whole ought to be. That's a profound change. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And, um, and, and also so different to, to the tradition and maybe good to, yeah, because in the power of music thinking, we don't, we, we also talk about music, but also about anything else, for example, business. Yes. And, and that, you know, it's, that's why I also yeah, never use music as a metaphor just to get an idea across. It's, it's much more an analogy. And if everybody has listened to what you just said with, let's say, with a business and a, a leadership uh, ear, um, he or she would understand from, hey, wait a minute, there's something that they're doing differently. And that is actually... Yeah, you you could say pretty modern, and in, in now now these days we have a lot of of buzzwords for this, and it's not a completely coincidence that the Orpheus Jambo Orchestra did not just play music, but also did something else, okay. right? Yes, well, I, I I would take it a step further and say it's not only a question of it's not just metaphor, but even beyond analogy, the the there are there are concrete, specific, in some cases cultural, in some cases technical learnings that you can derive from the experience of Orpheus and how it does its work that have these really powerful applications in lots of other environments. For example, it's clear from the work with Orpheus, it's also clear from the work of any really great <clears throat> ensemble. I don't care if it's a chamber group, jazz ensemble if it's a a, a a theater ensemble yeah it rests on a foundation trust and mutual respect among the people that are doing this if you don't have those things it simply doesn't work if those things don't exist the rest of it won't happen so what are the things that actually help inculcate and develop a culture characterized by trust and mutual respect And it's actually possible you can look then at Orpheus and at other ensembles as case studies and you can you can derive, you can distill out of how they do what they do, what makes it possible for them to operate with trust and mutual respect. And you can take that and you can actually apply that in a business setting or other kinds of settings. So there's 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 lots to be learned from that. For example, um, one of the things, if you're going to be working from the full score. Uh, as well as from your part, one of the things that you need is you need a group of people who know how to do two very different things. They know how to be specialists. So in that sense, if you think about it, the musicians of Orpheus, I mean, the greatness of the orchestra rested to a significant degree on the fact that each one of those individuals were among the great musician performers of their instrument of their time. That Ola section or, or whatever. So there was that ability to be a specialist, and that ability, of course, is reinforced by constant, constant practice and study and extreme self-criticism and, and iteration and everything that goes with that. That is a necessary condition. 
Necessary, but not sufficient. You also have to be a generalist. You also have to be able to actually look at that entire score and say, yes, I'm a, I'm, 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 I'm a violist. And as a violist, I know that my line is the most important thing on earth. And that's, that's what I'm there for. And so, of course, and yet I'm also a generalist. I can look at the whole picture and I can understand what that means and how I might contribute to it and how that might be and how that evolves. And so the ability to integrate those two things, to balance. So that implies that you recruit for that. In Orpheus, it was very hard to get into, into Orpheus. I used to say that there was more turnover in the College of Cardinals than there was in the actual core membership of Orpheus because <laughs> auditions would go on for decades because you could play with the orchestra, yes. To actually be accepted as, 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 as a member, you had to really prove that you could do those two things, that you could be one of the great musicians in the world on your instrument and you could be a great ensemble player who understood and could integrate and balance all these other things. And you had to prove it by actually doing it under very complex and challenging and demanding situations. So all of these cultural learnings that, 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 that you can derive, really what, what it became clear to me during my time with Orpheus is that the world was moving in those years. I, I, I came to Orpheus in the late 90s. And so my time there really spanned the, the beginning of the rise of what came to be known as the flat organization. The whole idea was pretty simple. The IT revolution had just come far enough where it was beginning to completely smash out layers of middle management who traditionally had done all kinds of middle, middle person functions and had instead through efficiencies that were made possible and necessary by technology and speed. Instead, it pushed the responsibility down into the hands of the people who were actually making, doing the work, making the products, and in this case, making the music. In this case, the conductor was, 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 was the middle person and was simply right. being, 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 being removed. And it occurred to me that we had... Um, what you're calling an analogy, and I agree it is an analogy, but beyond an analogy, you had maybe a set of operating principles for how do you form that kind of an organization? How do you support it? How do you sustain it? How do you make it work in practical terms? And it occurred to me that the things that Orpheus had learned and mastered were things that had incredible amounts to teach across a wide and increasing range of human endeavors, many of whom have little obvious connection with music, yep. conductorless orchestras. Right. And so we began experimenting. So the other thing that's maybe worth talking about for a minute or two is the relationship. Well, so so what what do you what what did I do? What what was the role of the director of an orchestra that works without a conductor? So the answer is actually pretty simple, but it's also a little paradoxical. In any organization, you need one way or another to have some mechanism that makes decisions if the other mechanisms fail. So you might operate in a democratic mode, you might and you might put to votes, you might there are lots of ways that uh, any organization, any society, can make its decisions. But in the end, sometimes those processes fail. And then you need some 
some mechanism to, to deal with that. If you don't have that, you have paralysis or you have chaos. And so, and Orpheus was always, no matter what else was going on, deeply dedicated to being quite sure that when the lights came down at eight o'clock, the music was ready to be made on stage. Uh, and so the person who was in the, that role of the director, uh, the CEO, if you will, of Orpheus, and that was me, becomes the decision maker of last resort on pretty much anything. Um, so the question is, what do you do as a decision maker of last resort? How do you know that you're being successful in an organization like Orpheus? And of course, I, I was asking myself this question because I was coming to Orpheus as a recovering conductor, if you somebody who was used to the old school way of doing it. A middleman, as he just yeah. said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it became really clear to me pretty quickly that there was a simple way of putting it. As the decision maker of last resort, I can gauge my effectiveness as the CEO of Orpheus in inverse proportion to the number of decisions that I was making. If I were not, if I if if I didn't have to make a lot of decisions, if other people were making decisions that I was quite satisfied and happy with, that because they were probably more knowledgeable about those things than me, better, better positioned to make those decisions in many cases, then I was doing my job well because I was fostering and developing and safeguarding a culture and a process that supported those things. And on those occasions where I had to step in and make a decision, I would do it. But in a sense, I always view those as a little bit of a failure of something in the, in, 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 in the system, which would lead me to, to think about, okay, so how can we do this differently in the future? So that's not really necessary. Mm. Oh, that's, that's a very interesting part because this means the way of working, let's say, extended from the music and the score to the organization where, the, where there might be no score. So and, and I, th I think that that's a very yeah. strong link uh, to 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 put together, and where you had one person that was let's say responsible to to keep it all together, and also maybe just to make one link uh, about the conductor as middleman. Mm, that's often when 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 there's a, let's say a high level talk about leadership with the conductor as a leader, it's always like uh, the. Actually, he's the the first follower of the composer. Meaning, if you if you have an orchestra of conductors, as you just said, this means the orchestra of conductors is looking much more to what actually we're doing, meaning the score, and bringing this to life, where a person had um, a creative idea and 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 also the skills to bring it down to paper, so that other people, as some kind of instruction, can make uh, can bring it to to great music. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate this because listening is one of the top leadership skills and I feel honored about this. It is my mission to find, create and share inspirations for meaningful collaboration based on music analogies. If you want to support this, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating or write a review on iTunes or Spotify. 
and more inspirations can be found on musicthinking.com. We have a blog and you can download the Music Thinking Framework. And finally, I would love to hear your feedback. And if you need help with a business challenge, please reach out to me via email podcast at musicthinking.com.